0: Today we're joined by Con McCarrick, who graduated from Black College in 2014. He founded the Kenyan Child Foundation, a charity that provides free primary education to over 250 students in rural Kenya. He's now working as Ireland's Youth Delegate to the United Nations, representing 1.3 million young people on a local, national and international level. Con, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, it's great to be here.
0: So you graduated from Blackrock in 2014. Could you tell us a bit about what you've been doing since you left the college?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I graduated in 2014, had a really um, great time in Blackrock. Uh, I went on then to study law at Trinity College Dublin. Um, so that was a 40 year degree, really had a good time there as well. And I ended up taking a sabbatical year to work as president of the University Philosophical Society. And that's like Trinity's largest debating society. It has about 10,000 members. And then so after college, I went on to work for the Department of Education and Skills and was interning with the Minister for Higher Education, Mary Mitchell O'Connor. So I got a really great um, insight into like policy making and, you know, politics and stuff on a local level there. So, yeah, from then I kind of went on to my work as um, UNU delegate. And so.
0: um, as well as all this, you've even founded a charity, the Kenyan Child Foundation. What motivated you to do this?
1: That's right. Yeah. So um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners in BlackRock would be familiar with the work um, of the school down in Kenya. So I went on that Leaving Cert outreach trip um, and was really struck, I suppose, by the poverty and deprivation and kind of lack of educational opportunities that were there. So myself and my dad um, set up this charity basically after we came back from that trip and that was 2015. And then um, you know, in the past five years, we've ended up setting up a fully, like, accredited primary school with 250 students, and that's called St. Patrick's Primary School, and it's just down the road from the Holy Ghost School um, in Machakas, and, you know, it's a really progressive, inclusive school, it has 12 classes, you know, it's fully certified by the Kenyan Ministry of Education and also, yeah, no, it's, it's a really, um, I mean, re- I'm really, like, proud of the work we've done there, and it's a really important part of my, like, kind of activism to give back to other communities and stuff, so, yeah.
0: Definitely. On your role in the UN, how did you get to be a youth delegate for Ireland?
1: Yep, so, I suppose, as a bit of background, I've been involved with youth activism for about 10 years, and a lot of that would have started in BlackRock, so, I was involved in the Student Council, and the Green Schools Committee, and Model UN, all those kind of things. I then went on to become um, Chair of the National Youth Parliament, so, I would have met with like the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs, the Corolla, the Taoiseach, all those kind of people. So I would have a bit of experience in kind of promoting young voices in political decision making. So um, when the call went out then this summer from the Department of Foreign Affairs for Ireland's youth delegate, I went for it. And, um, you know, it was quite a intensive process, lots of interviews and applications and, you know, assessments and stuff. But thankfully, I've come through the other side of it now. So uh, and I work with this girl, Tara Grace Connolly, and um, she's from Belfast and has done loads of work on Brexit and women and stuff. So we're a really good team and we, you know, we work to represent as many young Irish young people as we can on a local, national, international level, so.
0: And what work do you do as a delegate and what does a working day involve?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very varied, our work. So um, first and foremost, I suppose we want to represent the voices of Irish young people. So we'd speak at UN committees, We'd speak to the General Assembly or a third committee or UN working groups and stuff. And, you know, we'd hold consultations with young people all around Ireland. So about education or mental health or, you know, employment opportunities, that kind of thing. And then we'd um, kind of pass that work on to the Irish ambassador, Geraldine Bernaysen, and assist in their work or meet with the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney. So, yeah, um, we like every work, every day is varied. and. You know, so much of the work is online this year, so it really allows us to connect with more young people than ever. Um, so I suppose that's one of the benefits is that we've been able to like engage with a lot of young people through our work.
0: On that, about online, how has COVID impacted life as a youth delegate?
1: Uh, it's had a significant impact for sure. Um, like, the General Assembly is an event that happened in September, and it was the seventy-fifth anniversary of the UN this year, so all that happened online and its major theme was like responding to COVID-19. So I was speaking to the UN from my bedroom in Blackrock, you know, so that was that was a de- definitely different. Like every other year you'd be in New York. Um, but like it's still like been a fantastic year. We've got to, you know, speak to these different UN committees and, you know, get to meet more people than ever before. So it's, it's had a big um, positive impact on it. And I'd also say that it's a huge year for Ireland at the United Nations more generally in that like we are, Basically, on the Security Council now for a two year term. And for such a small country of us, like to have our voice at a table like that, myself and my colleague Tara Grace are really like trying to ensure that Irish young people are heard at those highest tables and that we like are representing youth issues as best as we can at those forums. So, yeah.
0: So, how would you say that Ireland's position on the Security Council impacts your role?
1: It has a huge impact. Um, so a lot of our work would involve writing like written contributions or you know preparing speeches that are delivered to the UN Security Council. And um, so we talk about like recovering from COVID-19 or climate action, mental health, the sustainable development goals, all those kind of things. So um, we really just want to ensure that the Irish mission, so um, that's the Ambassador Geraldine Byrne-Nason and you know, the, the, the team at the Department of Foreign Affairs are kind of listening to what young people are calling for in Ireland and that, like, our contributions to those tables um, are reflective of what young people are actually calling for.
0: And Would you say that we actually have a voice on this council or are we overruled by the vetoes of other countries?
1: Uh, it's a good, it's a great question and uh, I think Ireland does play a really significant role on the council. Like, we are very often a consensus builder and A bridge builder and like I think Ireland is like definitely going to carve out a role for itself in you know youth peace and security so that's one of the you know obviously coming from Northern Ireland and stuff we have a background in kind of conflict and the troubles and stuff so we can really use that kind of experience to inform like more better peace building opportunities and you know promote peace and stuff around Africa so I think we can draw on our history there to like serve in a in a meaningful way.
0: And on the topic of youth activism, are there any specific issues among young people that you're interested in and focus on as a delegate?
1: For sure. Um, so Youth Peace and Security is our number one priority at the moment. So that's the one that the Security Council are working on um, pretty regularly. And we've kind of celebrated the fifth year anniversary of the Youth Peace and Security um, biggest resolution and stuff. So. That'll be our number one one. But um, in terms of like COVID-19, we want to ensure that Irish young people have, you know, equitable access to, you know, Internet and to educational opportunities and employment opportunities. And something that comes through very strongly from our consultations with young people is like the importance of climate action. And, you know, we see the success of like the Fridays for Future movement and the Green Schools Committee and, you know, like the work of young activists like Greta Thunberg and all like is very much prevalent in youth issues at the moment. And yeah, I just think that the UN is quite responsive to what young people are calling for. Like we um, are the largest youth youth cohort in history of the United Nations. We have 1.8 billion young people and, you know, like not a whole lot of that is being reflected in like decision makers, like in parliaments and like legislatures nationally and stuff. So I suppose we'd be kind of calling for more representative democracy and you know having a having young people at the table i think because that makes much better um decisions in the end so do you have any advice for
0: young people on getting their voices heard and getting into politics
1: for sure um it's a tough road i would say but i think you have to know in yourself that like what you are offering is unique and like no one else has had your experience you know no one else has gone through the challenges you had or stuff like that so I think you really do have power in your own voice and I would say just to like not be nervous to go for it that like young people do have something to contribute and that like uh political decision makers are more and more including young people um so yeah
0: what do you think the biggest issue facing young people is and how should it be addressed
1: well uh I suppose currently it's the response to COVID-19 and um like the impact on our mental health, economic well-being, you know, all those, like there's so many impacts of COVID-19 at the moment, like in every aspect of our life, it's been totally transformed. And I would have gone into the year, you know, with certain priorities, like reducing inequality or, you know, climate action, or like eradication of poverty would have been some of my priority areas, but like just so much of the work this year, you have to respond to what young people, like meet young people where they're at. And I suppose, um, like so many people have been disadvantaged by COVID-19 and it's like been a, like the large disruption to our economic systems and education systems in the history of the world really so um that's what our kind of myself and Tara Grace are focusing on and we're make, coming up with a number of proposals and stuff that'll hopefully be brought to the UN Security Council now in the coming months so we're really looking forward to working with young people more on that and working with the Irish foreign affairs as well.
0: And um, would you like to continue working on international relations in the future, or is there another career path that you'd like to take?
1: Um, I think, yeah, I definitely enjoy international relations. I think um, it's such an interesting time for Ireland, obviously being on the Security Council, and because we're such a small country, it really it has put like Irish, like Irish perspectives, at the top of the top of the agenda. Like we're having a voice on. You know issues like Syria, Lebanon, you know um, South Sudan, Myanmar, like uh, so. Like people are actually a- asking what Ireland thinks of this and how we can kind of resolve those issues. So that's a really cool position to be in, especially as a young person to have your voice kind of valued. Um, but there, the UN and stuff can be quite slow to change. I would say so. Um, you know, it can seem kind of far off and inaccessible to young people and stuff. So I suppose I'd love to kind of just be working in something that kind of delivers a positive impact for young people. So I I suppose whenever we're kind of um, attending these events or consultations and stuff, we really want to be delivering, you know, tangible change for Irish young people. So something that I could suppose I could make a difference to young people. So that might be in law or politics or international relations, but yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, Con, for taking the time to talk with us and good luck on your work with the UN.
1: Thanks so much for having me, and if you guys want to keep in touch with our work, it's uh, UN Youth Ireland, so, uh,
2: yeah. I am Alec Linklater, and I am the host of today's broadcast panel discussion, and today I'm being joined by Fionn Graham, Matthew Burke Kennedy, and Jonathan Hoffman. The topics we are going through today are the UN Donor Conference, the AstraZeneca controversy, Dublin riots, and the reopening of schools. First off, we're going to have Fionn talking about the U.N. Donor Conference.
3: Hey, so uh, I'll be taking a look at something that's really hit the papers uh, only yesterday. The Irish government pledged five million euro to Yemen in aid of one of the world's uh, worst humanitarian crises in in recent history at uh, the U.N. Donor Conference, the worldwide support adding to just one point seven billion euro, which is meeting less than half of the sum appealed for by the U.N., which was three point eight five billion. Uh, the conflict has raged on since 2014 when Iran backed rebels, took control of uh, the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, a uh, civil war took over the country and it has since seized the lives of over 150,000 people. The war has led to what will soon be if financial aid is not dramatically increased and all-out famine. Uh, but it hasn't really been on the, um, the news unless you actually look for it, um, a huge amount. and um, In a world surrounded by social media and the sharing of information, how can a full-scale war go almost unheard? The answer is it isn't unheard, it is ignored, um, potentially, because it is being profited from by uh, many uh, developed countries. So uh, since uh, July 2020, uh, up until this very day, the UK has been licensing a steady stream of arms worth over £1.4 billion to Saudi Arabian forces. Uh, The army has added greatly to the bloodshed by launching airstrike after airstrike killing over 8,000 civilians since their entering into the war. The UK has also halved its donation made last year, uh, uh, now at this pivotal point in the conflict. In fairness to Saudi Arabia, who has added to the violence, it was the leading donor at the conference, donating 430 million euro in aid. But the violence shows no sign of stopping and more civilians continue to get caught in the crossfire. We cannot allow for war to ever be profitable, and there should never be an incentive for armed conflict. Uh, If if a developed democracy like the UK will openly sell arms to war-torn countries, then it doesn't take a wild imagination to get an idea of just how many countries and organizations are making money from this death and destruction. The only way the civilians of Yemen can be saved from this death sentence, according to the UN Secretary General, is by a famine preventing ceasefire. But talks are only made more difficult by constant aggression from uh, the saudi arabian-led coalition uh Um, any thoughts on that
4: i just think this idea that the yemen war is not being talked about you see it on people's instagram so it's just not true it has been on the news for the last several years and this claim that it's just going unnoticed is just a complete falsification i mean you bring up you know, Western democracies selling arms to to Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia is an ally of the West. They are the greatest force standing up against Iran in the region, who is a much greater threat to the West and is also um, hugely involved in supplying arms to the Houthi rebels. But um, you bring up the UK. The UK are also the leading country calling for the ceasefire and I think their cutting aid was not out of spite but because they need that money to deal with their own domestic issues after they've seen a huge reduction in their economy after the COVID-19 crisis and I don't think sitting on the sidelines here and giving out is really going to solve the problem.
3: Well that's that's a fair point you make about the UK however it's quite a um it's 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 a little bit counterintuitive to be claiming to want a ceasefire and yet be supporting the armed conflict by uh, sending arms to war-torn areas. They are not, uh, although you know, verbally they may be trying to help. They are um, practically speaking, they are only adding to the violence. And um, relative to the size and scale of the conflict, Yemen has gone has, has not. Um, gained the uh, news coverage it deserves considering the, the scale of the issue um,
4: Well I mean you say you know you have some kind of moral outrage their sale of arms to Saudi Arabia if the UK didn't sell arms to Saudi Arabia someone else would the idea that if just one country doesn't their supply is going to be completely cut off is just ridiculous it's not going to happen
3: Well that's shouldn't developed uh, democracies be leading examples rather than saying you know someone else might uh do the same as we're doing so why not do it
4: when you have the rising tyrannical regime of iran taking its hold in the region no i don't particularly want a weak saudi arabia
3: that's fair point jonathan but the fact is the conflict shows no signs of stopping, after, even though it started back in 2014. So clearly, the investment in arms and the continued, um, the continued support of conflict um, on Saudi Arabia's side is not helping. So, what, so what,
4: what exactly are you suggesting? We cut off arms from Saudi Arabia, the Houthis win, and we now have a, an Iranian-controlled puppet state in Yemen. Is that your suggestion?
3: Well, as you said, Saudi Arabia are, are allies of many developed Western countries. So um, supporting them fighting the conflict is, is not the way forward. We should put pressure on them to stop because it is very much within their interest to remain allies uh, with many Western countries, including the UK and uh, the US. And it does not make sense to be supporting the conflict for fear of Saudi, um, for fear of other countries doing what we're doing.
4: Now, other countries are already doing what they're doing and they were doing it before them that's why the conflict started where do you think the houthis are getting their military equipment from Fion? if saudi arabia stops the yemeni government will collapse and the houthis and the iranians will take control of the country
3: well first of all the yemeni uh government has virtually already collapsed the capital has been seized by the houthis and um the democracies of the western world. Should be a leading example, um, and not just, uh, as I said, um, doing what they're doing. Like you say, um, that it was already being done. Well, that's not really.
4: I mean, you, you can you can sit there in your circle singing "Come by of Peace the World" all you want, Fionn, but I'm afraid that's not really going to solve the issue of increasing Iranian aggression in the region, and it's not going to stop the Houthis from taking control. Well, we saw the, uh, that
3: Iranian aggression can be uh, stunted simply by political pressure. Like, if you look at what, uh, I mean, Donald Trump is not a great example, but he did um, sort of scare them into uh, st- not retaliating against they the assassination of their ge- uh, general. On, well, it was on, a stunt. On,
4: on January 20th, <laughs> 2020, they launched an airstrike on the U.S. al-Assad base in Iraq.
3: Which was, uh, they already contacted the Iraqi uh, people uh, at the base, uh, telling them to leave. It was a stunt to keep the people happy rather well, before, than actual military aggression. It so was military. It was, it was a facade.
4: on a military base is not aggression. Is that, is that, is that what you're telling me? It so? was a
3: facade that did not cause any um, damage to human life. And it, it was only to uh, keep the I Iranian people over, from thinking their government had lost its honor.
4: Over 100 U.S. soldiers sustained some form of minimal brain damage after the attacks. I'm not quite sure that's true. And now the worry is in the change of foreign policy, we could see a a regrowth of Iran and their power in the region. But I don't know, Fionn, what would your suggestion be on how to deal with Iran funding rebels in a country trying to overthrow the government?
3: political pressure mostly um it is in iran already
4: faces a huge amount of political pressure well
3: biden is engaging in talks but they're not really um mounting um the type of pressure they should be Um, like
4: what 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 what, what your idea i mean you can use these vague terms jonathan
3: i am not a diplomat uh, representing the un but i am saying that the conflict that um uh, that Iran and Saudi Arabia have been engaged with has not shown any signs of ceasing, so clearly another way must be um, found. I'm not sure exactly what that way is, but the current route is not working at all, and it is the definition of madness to, con- uh, c- to continue something uh, that again and again that has failed.
2: And with that, I assuming Fion is done, uh, and next we'll be going on to Jonathan Hoffman with the AstraZeneca controversy.
4: Um, you know we've we've um, we saw a few weeks ago the huge AstraZeneca vaccine um, disagreement going on between obviously the UK Swedish firm and the European Union after the European Commission complained that they had not been sent the number of vaccines that they requested despite the fact they had not yet approved the vaccine and ordered them three months later than the United Kingdom. But then after that, they continued a disinformation campaign, which has proved incredibly deadly, where they have claimed that the vaccine is ineffective, especially for those over 65, with over half of European Union countries recommending the AstraZeneca not be taken for over 65s. It has now been approved by the European Union, but despite this, millions of them still remain on shelves after people are refusing to take them through fear after the disinformation.
5: One thing that I've uh, read, which to add to that, which I think is quite star- scary, is that we're um, from the Irish Mirror. It says a German ner- newspaper claimed that the German government only expected the vaccine to have an efficiency of 8% once the tests are complete
4: 8% well they've actually they found in the UK um after it's been given they found an 80 per 80% reduction in hospitalizations through the Pfizer vaccine and a 95% reduction in hospitalizations for the AstraZeneca vaccine so, um, I don't know where these these kind of studies were taken were gotten by the European Union, and it does seem to be some kind of um almost spite that they they were not given the vaccines despite the fact that they you know their ordering of them was incredibly late in terms of the global you know vaccine purchasing. But um, I think you know these lies will cost lives of people in the European Union, and it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, can you
5: remind me, is the AstraZeneca vaccine is that a one or two
4: jab? Um, well, there it's a two jab, but they found after only one, um, eighty percent efficiency still there, so um. Who knows how long we'll continue with the um, the one job, the two job kind of policy? Because here our numbers um, do pale in comparison to that of the UK, who were obviously able to start several weeks before us, and it really does call into question um, a huge amount um, regarding European bureaucracy and um, how this has cost European lives, not benefited them. Yeah. Um. On
5: an, on another note, uh, I've I uh, one thing that's quite known is that uh, when received the vaccine, you can still transmit and carry COVID nineteen. I so, think they. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry. So what would you say that would mean in terms of like reopening lockdown if people are vaccinated and if people are refusing to vaccinate and that sort
4: of carry on. What would you say that's going to mean in terms of reopening the country? Well, I mean, recent studies have come out suggesting that the vaccine is very efficient in preventing transmission of the virus. But I think, you know, once we have vaccinated all our vulnerable, you know, whether it be older people or people with pre-existing health conditions, I mean, you have to open. Because there's no there's no other barrier. We can't just constantly go lockdown open lockdown open. It's not going to work. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but um, many of those who are even vulnerable do not um, even think COVID exists. Uh, what what do you think we'd have to do there?
4: Well, I mean, I think it is important to maintain a personal choice. I I am against um, government mandated um, vaccinations. Would I be in favour of something like to have in Australia, even prior to COVID, the no job, no rules, where children enrolled in public uh, schools must be vaccinated, potentially, yeah.
2: Yes, but um, the, the schools would have to send out forms to the parents. But what if the parents don't agree with the forms? Then there's many children in school that don't have the vaccine. There are also many adults that don't choose to ta- to take the vaccine. And it just goes on with tons of people not taking the vaccine, and the longer, the longer the vaccine, is, the longer COVID still around, then uh, the more chances it has to potentially mutate.
4: Well, I think it really is a common sense issue. I mean, I, I don't think the number of people who won't take it will be that large. I mean, we have tons of other, um, you know, pathogens stuff like that which we do now have vaccines for that there are those who do object to, but we do still see um, a good amount of efficiency in getting rid of them. But in terms of a, getting rid of COVID altogether, I don't think that is going to be a realistic target. I think it is going to be something we we'll gonna have to learn to live with. And I think we're going to need to learn to fight it without lockdown. Do you reckon we
5: will go back to normal, as in like, the, like the whole masks idea of you know no shops or shopping centers yeah. or I mean, do you think masks will more or less be around for years to come?
4: I mean we see in a lot of Asian countries after obviously SARS there is a huge amount of mask wearing there even pre-COVID so perhaps yeah. we could see something similar here with um, people obviously more scared of masks but I do imagine um, later on there will be a huge call, you know, for the removal of mandated mask wearing in uh, public places. Yeah, definitely a tricky one. But I, the, the idea that we're going to be, you know, COVID free, I just don't think it's going to be realistic. I mean, if you look at New Zealand, which everyone, you know, is claiming is some kind of heaven, every time they open up, they get another COVID case. So it, unless you want to be like, you know, North Korea and just shut our borders for the rest of existence. I don't think a zero COVID policy is really going to be possible. So, so you reckon
5: things like masks and social distancing will more or less be in place for years to come?
4: Um, I, I, I don't. I don't think the public will really accept that. I think it'll get to the point where we've done the best we can in terms of vaccinations and then people will say, I've had enough.
5: Yeah, I do yeah, well not moving on but on the next topic as you know the Dublin riots people are clearly showing that they yeah. have had enough
4: definitely. So yeah. I mean there's always going to be you know extremists but I I think there is a large difference between the people we saw on the streets a few days ago and people who do think maybe it's time for a new a change of a change of policy and I think there is kind of a risk that maybe all those who think maybe it is time for a new policy could be kind of branded with the same brush of the you know the folks we saw a few days ago
5: yeah um i yeah i would just think there'd be in trying to get the government to you know people were protesting and starting riots you know like they don't go into a riot like that in the mindset that you know lockdown is going to be changed and you know
4: Yeah.
5: You know, Neil Martin's gonna be like, "Okay, go on then." You know, go about yourselves. So the thing, kind of, what they're doing is they're more or less just protesting a thing that they're just technically prolonging.
4: I mean, it's
5: just a like, just beyond stupid if you think about
4: it. Like, I mean, the same could be said for a huge amount of protests. I mean, I do have to question the actual efficiency of them. I mean. the the climate protests blocking Lewis's incredibly climate efficient transport. I mean, it is, there's a huge amount of nonsensical demonstrations we see, um, you know, very commonplace. But obviously during COVID times, you know, we saw, we saw similar, probably more people protesting earlier on this year, but obviously that didn't get the same amount of criticism for the lack of social distancing. Yeah.
2: All right, so I think we might wrap that one up there because it was starting to get a little bit off topic. Um, but anyways, we're gonna get on to um, Matthew Burke Kennedy with Dublin riots, which he hinted on uh, previously a little bit.
5: So it's not it's not news to everyone, about the uh, riots that happened on Grafton Street. The other day I'm pretty sure everyone's probably seen these videos. Uh, but yeah, so Leo Radker stated uh on um on the news on the news talk that he said this was a uh, a riot definitely not a protest uh quoting him there's no excuse for this kind of violence to advance a political cause no matter what the cause i find that quite interesting and um, he praised Gardi for their uh, intervention and the swiftness in bringing charges against 13 people arising from the incidents Uh, saying it was a really good example of very swift and very effective policing. Would you really reckon that the policing in those riots were effective?
4: I mean, the question really is why don't we have an effective riot control force? I mean, if you look to the UK, the US, You know, they have fully armoured, riot shielded police officers to deal with these situations. Whereas I think the majority of the guards we saw there were just regular uniform with batons. And that's really not efficient equipment to deal with a situation of this calibre, I don't think.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Jonathan, um, not very many, um, like, actual incidents like this occur very often. Like, you don't get very many uh, riots. Most of them are just peaceful protests.
4: I mean, I obviously do see where you're coming from, but the issue with that logic is you don't need it until you do. And if we, you know, have that, well, we don't need it now. Well, then when we do need it, we won't have it, like like what happened a few days ago. But what what would be the uh, what would be the
5: funding situation for you know like this is like what the like the first riot since since I, I don't even know when, but. Financial-wise, would it really be
4: necessary to have you know like a riot team? And I mean, we we had similar. I'm not sure to the same caliber, but we did have aggressive demonstrations. Obviously, I think in 2012, 2013, when um, Her Majesty the Queen was visiting the Republic of Ireland, and there was huge. demonstrations that that which did get to a violent level where Gardaí did have to obviously go in um and respond to that in you know a physical manner so I I do think it is something that we should be investing more in yeah and um, to be honest I don't know if I'd agree with you on on that
5: because I uh you know the amount of times that a riot is going to happen in Ireland you know I don't you know taxpayers would be pretty fed up with that sort of thing because you know there'd be no point in having a big uh riot team on standby for kind of years on end until there's one riot and then you know well well well,
3: although our guardi are very vulnerable because they're unarmed to any real form of uh weaponry that any gangs or any criminal activity or anything uh, might have yeah um, i mean the-
2: John. once you uh bring in uh actual like uh weapons then you have another um issue on your hands like s- um citizens and uh civilization getting their hands on more arms than are already illegal oh no i'm not
3: arguing that Guardi should be armed but i am saying there should be uh specialized units which we already have but i think they should be uh, i think there should be more of them and they should be more kind of uh, ready to be um, sort of more on call.
4: I mean, yeah, Fiona does make a good point there. We do have, obviously, the AORU, our armed response units, which we do see patrolling the streets. But I think it's about the right kind of equipment, I mean, and the training to deal with these kind of situations um, that could have really averted this kind of situation a lot quicker. If we had, you know, tear gas and water cannons, perhaps that crowd could have been, you know, dispersed a lot quicker before the first firework could have been shot. Yeah,
5: I am, I think, uh, I don't know, I think the use of tear gas, would you reckon that could be excessive or would you think that'd be appropriate for?
4: Well, I mean, when when a crowd yeah. is, is throwing things and shooting, you know, improvised explosives at Guardi, I think you have kind of, suspended your right to um to be there and i mean there's there's very minimal long-term damage that can be done by tear gas and it, it is incredibly effective uh dispersing crowds yeah
2: i feel that um well the americans uh have like a protocol or law i'm not sure what it's called where the officers um have lethal weapons but um don't actually use them until there um uh, the like uh, the other person has like a potential weapon or a, um, something lethal to protect themselves and I feel that could be uh, very useful in this situation whereas uh, the tear gas are potentially something even worse could be used if um, the riots got too out of
4: hand. I mean I think um Obviously bringing firearms to such an event could potentially lead to more complications than it solves. I mean the last thing that we want is, you know, a firefight to break out on Grafton Street. But um I do think we do need to have the correct the correct stuff there.
3: Yeah, well I think I think gangs and rioters are always going to be try and compete on trying to compete on some level with the guards. So yeah, if we if we arm our guards, then there are gonna be people who are gonna be prepared to sort of be the counter of the guards.
4: Well, um, I mean we we in more crime ridden areas we do have more armed police and there would be more ARU patrols going around. But I think we do need to separate the issues of so obviously gangland violence and vicious mobs like we saw a few days ago.
3: That's true. Although, you know, the writers might have been more inclined, like, you know, luckily, I think there was only one person with uh, fireworks. But um, if the writers had expected um, armed guardie on the scene, then
4: there might have been more. I think people are aware of the fact that, you know, the use of firearms is firearms is really going to be the last resort. And it really is. It is guard a protocol to only use firearms and they believe someone's life is at risk and if they don't shoot that someone will die like we've seen the last few use of lethal force by um on guard shircona um
5: and another thing said i think it was in the irish times said uh the current protesters now everyone's calling them rioters not protesters the people who are protesting uh, were associated with the anti-mask, anti-social distance, and like the I don't know what you call the next group, but the group that wouldn't believe in COVID, COVID deniers, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, obviously that was- would you would you agree with that, or what would you say about that? Well, I mean, I think you do bring up a very good point of the language used by people, whether they describe them as protesters or rioters. And we can often see, you know, um, the terms used differently for similar actions, depending on whether people agree with the demonstration or not. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a bit of a mix. I think some
5: people definitely went out just had the opportunity to. Yeah. I definitely think... Some people just went out to genuinely protest because they didn't, you know, think this was fair on the economy and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think it would have been a mix between few groups.
4: I mean, I think there is really an issue between, you know, of the people being able to relay a message to the government because, I mean, if we all know that TDs, ministers, t are not going to be affected by these measures, they have their pension. Yeah, some of them have government houses. They have government cars. They have a salary. None of that is going to be cut by these lockdown measures, or their livelihood, or their family's livelihood at risk. Um, whereas obviously the rest of us would have that issue. So I, I, think the issue of you know bringing a message to power is an important one during these times. But I don't think anyone would um would would support the um the way that was done a few days ago.
5: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think we've kind of ruined, because obviously there's people with small businesses and things, and people are losing their jobs every day. I think it is a little bit outrageous, you know, how bad the economy is getting. And I think there definitely was a need to maybe protest against it and maybe ease up restrictions on certain things. But I think we've kind of ruined our chance now to...
3: Well, know. That's fair, but that's kind of about the kind of argument, you know, money versus lives. Should we care about the economy more or about our elderly
4: and our vulnerable? Um, well, so- I mean, I think the important thing is to protect those who are vulnerable. But I mean, the majority of those that are going to be affected by these measures are not. I mean, the average age of death by COVID, as I've said before, in this country by COVID is 83 it, the average age of normal death in this country is 82.2. So we do really need to kind of put that number into account and see the majority of people in this country are not 83, but these measures are still applied to everyone. I do think we do need to give people a personal choice as to what they want to do with the rest of their lives, whether it be, you know, for for their next 50 years or maybe their next five or even their next one. And if I was in that vulnerable category and I was maybe coming to the end of my life, would I want to spend it locked inside at home? No, seen, that's, that, I, I, I I would rather be at that risk and, you know, enjoy what I consider a full life than maybe play it safe at home.
5: Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. The, uh, I've heard that statistic before where the average age is uh, to die in Ireland two points two or something was it and then it yeah. was you know the covid and then I've, I've heard that before but that's definitely a touchy one because people you know you'd be taking it you'd be technically saying like oh this person's life you know doesn't matter as much as our lives that sort of thing so it's definitely a dodgy one but um
4: well i don't think that that, that... If you construed that way, that's not what I was trying to say. I think I was really, yeah. you know, it, it, it is construed as this incredibly dangerous virus. And obviously it's something that, you know, no one would want anyone to have. But the majority of people who have this virus will cough for two days and then be fine. So should we have these almost draconian measures? I'm sure if anyone's been in the car, we would have seen, you know, guarded checkpoints at every other road. And you know is this, is this the correct response, and is this cure to the disease worse than the disease on its own?
3: That's uh fair, Jonathan, but the you would for that to really for the idea of just um keeping the um the vulnerable isolated, you know you would have to also isolate everyone who interacts closely with the with the vulnerable, for instance nurses and doctors. Um, because you know, for instance, if if a a doctor was you know as you say you know living a full life or um, going outside because they chose to and then they go into a and e um, and spread it accidentally, then um, that that's a bit of that would be a bit of a disaster.
4: That is a very good point, and I'm di- I am glad you brought that up, Fiona, because I obviously right. believe that there would be exceptions to public health workers, you know, who would have to be in contact with people who did make the decision to be safe but I think it should be people's personal choice at the end of the day not only you know pri- prior yeah, mainly for those who will be vulnerable and maybe at the end of their lives and whether they want to spend you know um, their end locked inside and I think they should have that choice whether they do or whether you know they would like to do what some would consider you know more of a true life than um, lockdown i uh i
5: liked uh, i liked your point there just a minute ago on how you said uh in the news covid 19 is portrayed as a deadly virus and another fact on that one is is how the majority of people are actually asymptomatic yeah so it, it's funny to say you know, portray it as a deadly virus when it's only deadly to you know about I don't even know what of the population, but a very small number.
4: Nonetheless. Yeah, I've, I've obviously, I've had COVID before and it's certainly not something, you know, I enjoyed having. But <laughs> I never no one says no. So. I was never at any point at any risk. And the majority of those who are dying are already at risk for a number of other things other than COVID.
3: Although, you know, in... The problem about households is, uh, you know, let's say uh, two people in the family, for instance, um, are nervous about it. Um, you know, maybe maybe they're somewhat vulnerable. Maybe they've got, uh, you know, a problem with their lungs, for instance. Um, and the other two people in, within the household decide they're going to use this uh, new right that you have suggested. You know, to go outside and live that life. Then it's not really the the people, the vulnerable people who have chosen to stay safe don't really have a choice in that matter.
4: Well, I mean, obviously, Fionn, that is a discussion to have. However, I mean, that is a tiny not percent of a not percent of the population, all of whom who are currently affected by these lockdown measures. But we have, you know, obviously, we have the vaccine rolling out now. I think the UK, they've done over 20 million. So they've done nearly a third of their population at this point um so once we have the vulnerable done i think there is absolutely no excuse to keep businesses closed and all of us locked at home but well, that's kind of what we're working towards anyway just vaccinating
3: the vulnerable and then we can ease restrictions so i think that's pretty much what the government is doing
4: well i mean it gets to the point where um um yeah the the, the goal do keep on getting moved. I mean, you saw in the UK they've done the majority of their vulnerable, but they won't be opening up until June. Well, yeah,
3: the different governments will will make different decisions. Um, and the
4: Irish government haven't even given a date as to when we'll be open. Well,
3: our yeah, our rollout of vaccines has been a bit of a a bit a bit of a disaster. Um, that's yeah. there's no question about that.
5: Not to mention that Micheal Martin himself was, uh, was you know he was told that if he if we left the country open for Christmas, this is the situation we'd be in. Like he he knew that this was this isn't a big surprise. I mean he knew that you'd keep it open for Christmas, um and then this was going to happen. And yet he decided to do it anyways, kept it open for Christmas, and now we're in this scenario. Hasn't given us a date or anything. People yeah. are losing their jobs. So when he's made like you know a few mistakes and situation and such a huge gravity to it, I think people will understandably get super frustrated when he's not yeah. really on the
3: ball. I I agree with that. Although in fairness to um Mihal Martin, there was a new stra- an unexpected new strain that came out, which kind of added to the issue, you know, and made it much worse than was expected. So we're not really in the situation that was predicted, although you're right, I don't think we should have uh eased the lockdown
4: and Fionn, you are right with bringing up the new strain because there is you know a really bad effect of lockdown is we are in a way reversing the typical engineering of a virus I mean usually a virus will have to um mutate to become less effect to become less um less deadly. Because then it's more likely that it'll kill all the people who it's vulnerable to um, and less contagious um, because of the survival of the fittest, which we usually see in nature and in a non-lockdown country. But now that we are all locked down, the virus is starving and it's having to mutate the opposite direction, be more deadly and be more contagious just in order to survive. And I think that is really dangerous and that's something we are going to have to uh, assess in the future
3: uh that's true but you know when you look at a country that kind of went the opposite way like uh for instance Sweden um who pretty much said you know we're going to do social distancing but we're not really going to have a lockdown um you know their their cases have sh- uh shot up since then which was actually months ago that they did that but uh relative to their population their cases and deaths have been far far worse than us
4: I mean, but, but when we do bring up cases and deaths, they are obviously in some way a, a representation of the figures, But it is obviously important to know how those figures are accounted. I mean, cases are positive tests. not. I mean, there is obviously a 0.3 percent um, false positive rate. Deaths are people who not necessarily died of COVID but died within 28 days of a positive test. So there is obviously a huge you know, risk when looking at figures and knowing how they have been calibrated and how they represent um, the true figures.
3: That's true. Although Ireland has been um, possibly kind of almost over-honest um, about that. You know, we, we've kind of gone the opposite way. Uh, you know, if someone has covid and they like as as you said they have covid but they possibly die of another cause then it is a covid death um so i think but when you compare ireland's figures to a country like sweden which may have gone the opposite direction um you know and and say sweden has higher deaths and higher um higher cases i think that's a pretty fair representation if not um sort of it's, it's more exaggerated or mm-hmm. it's, it's much worse than they
4: are saying. Well, I mean, that is, that is, of course, one field in which we have beaten them. I would say we've beaten them in, in, you know, obviously the date, the deaths in cases, keeping them low in population. But I'm sure if you look at things like economy, you know, rate of domestic violence, rate of suicide, stuff like that, I'm not quite sure we would, we we would beat them in those fields. I'm sure we would be far worse. I mean, we saw in the first lockdown a rise in by 50% in domestic violence. I mean, we've seen our economy shrink drastically. We're going, we had a deficit this year. I mean, and this is really dangerous stuff. We will most likely have to go into austerity now. Where we'll be increasing taxes and cutting public services and that is the question we need to ask is the cure the cure of lockdown better than the virus or is it worse i saw an interesting thing to say
5: that uh with covid you know due to lockdown because i think you know around last year may was when a majority of countries were in lockdown and then thing that was said was that global death rates were actually down because people who work out in harsh environments such as you know dealing with like bad bad air quality and yeah that sort of thing so due to covid everyone's saying indoors and global death
4: rate was down yet we were still you know told this was a deadly virus well i think here we obviously we we did have an increase in the rate of death how drastic it was I'm not quite sure, but um, you do bring up a good point in that the level of 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 death. Obviously, one death is too many, but it is a harsh reality of life that people do die. Yeah, I agree
5: with you on that one.
2: All right, so I think that wraps it up for that topic. Um, next up we have. Jonathan Hoffman with the reopening of schools
4: and the UK. Um, so, obviously, we've seen in the UK very recently, they've announced that by March 8th, all of their schools will be open. In Ireland, we only wish we saw six years back last week and we're going to see a gradual um a gradual increase in the years added to that list going up until, of course, the Easter holidays. But I do really think that this, the, the issue of education should not be one that's forgotten in the debate about the harms of lockdown. I mean, it's very easy for those who have computers, have phones, are able to engage in online lessons, but that can't be said for a huge amount of children out there and families who don't have... Two, three computers for every child in the house. I think this is going to add additional strain to those children. I think it is time we open the schools now because children are not going to be at risk of this virus.
2: Uh, yes, but what about the children that bring it home to their families?
4: Would that not be an issue? Well, I mean, again, again, very. That is an important point when reopening schools. But I mean, we didn't see a huge spike after schools were opened last time. And I think there is, of course, those who do have a vulnerable family member at home or are vulnerable themselves. There should, of course, be the facilities in place for them to participate in online school. But whether I think we should lower the education standards of everyone in each year, for a very, very, very minimal amount of people, I don't.
5: Do you think online school? It's obviously not as effective as regular school, but would it, you, you know, would online school be effective at all,
4: almost? Or? Um, obviously there is some level of effectiveness too. I mean, there is some form of education going on, at least for us anyway. Whether that can be said for everyone? I don't know, but I think, you know, their school is not necessarily just about education, but also about socialising, sports, exercise, a huge number of things that aren't being taken into consideration and can't go on at the moment. Yeah, I, the,
5: the one thing that's, you know, with reopening things is and um, keeping things like gyms and just general, like, sports and things like that open. Yeah the closed side so i think when the government has closed everything like schools not trying to reopen mm-hmm. them yet over christmas we have thousands of people coming in from you know wherever uk and all this thing it's like mm-hmm. you know people who are quarantining and staying in their home can't go to the gym yet someone from london
4: can fly over and possibly bring a new strain to ireland yeah you know what well, i mean it's a bit silly isn't it obviously you know the the, the new arrivals from the UK and everywhere were um, were supposed to isolate themselves. Obviously, we know that hasn't exactly gone to plan, however, as we've... Um, 90% of our new cases are obviously the new UK strain of COVID-19. But I whether I think, you know, we should shut up, shut the entire border and, you know, become a North Korea-esque state, I'm not sure that that itself is an affordable solution because we whether we like it or not we need people coming in I mean our parcels from Amazon are brought in either on planes or by trucks a huge amount of our food is imported we are a nation that imports a great deal of things which do obviously you know a lorry cannot drive itself so whether it's shutting all air travel down would be an effective countermeasure to, you know, the spread of COVID-19, I'm not really sure. Well, I think, um, I think that's a good point, but I think passengers
3: and uh, cargo um, sort of, uh, so there should be difference in the treatment between, say, a ferry that's transporting people in cars than uh, a, a, a trawler that is transporting food and, and goods. I think that should be dealt with differently.
4: But I mean, at the end of the day, they are still people coming from one country to another. But you know, th- that that's travel that we can't cut down on unless we want half the nation to starve.
3: Well, that's true. But um, you know, relative the the amount of goods come into the relative um relative to the amount of people coming in with them uh, is much smaller um when we look at a uh, cargo um trucks and cargo uh, ships.
4: But I mean, we also do need to look at the effect this will have on the airline industry, which is also incredibly important, not only, you know, for us to travel, but also the Irish economy. I mean, Ryanair is one of the largest, most successful companies in this country, and them, along with all other airlines, are facing a huge impact, a negative impact by this via by, uh, by these lockdown measures i mean heathrow airport the busiest airport in the world saw a loss of 20 billion pounds last year i mean not 22 billion pounds two billion pounds last year and i mean whether our whether we'll be able to return to our level of that small connected world and um, i don't know and i think our airline industry is something we're going to need to protect as well i just think if we're going to do a whole scale level five lockdown and have
5: people not able to go to things like uh you know like gyms and it's just like stay indoors all day long and no doing anything i think and obviously as you take into account what you say about food importing and exporting there's no point in half-assing it yeah we should if we're gonna do a lockdown we should do a level five lockdown do it really really harshly yeah a quarter of the amount of time like what's the point of just doing lockdown when realistically huge population isn't doing it it's going out in huge groups spreading it and i mean other people staying indoors not socializing and just ruining it and it's just a bit of a mess <laughs> that.
4: i mean you're right and but i what i don't agree with that the the way to solve the negative impacts of lockdown are more lockdown i I think, the, the, you know, the way to solve that would be less lockdown, not more. So instead of, you know, closing the airports so that they're equal with the gyms, open the gym so they're equal with the airports would be what I would say. Yeah, I just, I just do think it's
5: a little bit frustrating when you see, uh, you know, all the stuff. I mean, it's,
3: it, you know, it's a, uh... It's interesting about, you know, an intense lockdown and then an, an almost complete reopening. Mm-hmm. But the fact is this virus will last, will outlast any short lockdown. And, you know, perhaps a, a, a sort of a lighter lockdown will have more stamina and people will be able to handle it longer. I don't think, you know, once we get out of an intense lockdown, it's not like the virus is going to be gone. The virus will be with us for a long time. So I don't think a mm-hmm. short, intense uh, lockdown is the right solution.
4: I mean, you're right. I don't think a short, I I don't think the virus will outlive a short lockdown. I think it'll outlive all of us. I don't think it's something, it's not going to be like, you know, the bubonic plague and we're not going to have it anymore. That's not going to happen. It'll be like the flu where every year, you know, you get your, co- you know, people who are vulnerable will get their COVID jab. Yeah. And it's about preparing for that normality, not, you know, just in-out, in-out, in-out lockdowns where we give businesses some kind of hope they can make it through the year and then we close them again. It's just,
6: it's just definitely a tricky one when, you know, we're doing a lockdown and it's just
5: not being taken as seriously by some people. And these people protesting, rioting, and, and people going out. Although you can under definitely understand people's frustration, but yeah, it's just prolonging it for everyone else. And if it, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just a bit useless to know when people are going out like massive groups of
2: rioting. Well, that. I mean, like, the only way know. to do that, like to like lower that down, is to like enforce new measures, like more strict measures by like um lowering down the actual um, the ways people are able to leave their house like essential working they they can lower down the um, reasons or excuses people have to leave their homes
5: but I think that kind of ship that ship has sailed in the sense of we've been on lockdown for like pretty much a year now and there'd really be no point in like me or Martin now coming up with, saying we're doing a stricter lockdown because then everyone would, would be like, okay, well, everyone's already like sick yeah. to the truth of it. So the idea of introducing stricter rules now would almost be worse than yeah. the easy to rules Because people, it's getting to the point where people are just going to start going out and doing whatever as they are now. Yeah. So doing more
4: lockdown rules is, I don't think would be effective. I mean, I think the issue with the idea of only essential workers, I mean, we cannot live forever where we're prohibiting people from making any money and then we're just giving the money out of the state's pocket that we don't have i mean how big is our debt going to be the uk i think have built up two trillion pounds worth of debt over this lockdown period Not to, the, much, not to in the rest of the world as well like wh- yeah what, what like on earth is going to be happening it's Like. I mean, we can have, we can, we can, all enjoy the big recession we're going to have as soon as we are out of this, when there's hardly any jobs left.
5: Yeah, I think it's... Um, and I think the idea that this absolute nightmare is going to be coming now from mm-hmm. we know jobs here are going to be fired, people are going to be evicted from their homes, you know, the homeless rate right will keep yeah. going up huge, you know, this... Dire situation that we're gonna have next. I don't, you know, what I mean, all to save Jono, as you said, you know, as the average death race. They're over, you know. Yeah. The age you of the know what I mean? I, so, so going back to that, is it all worth it for saving, you know, a yeah, a pretty dodgy thing to say, but is it really worth saving a few elderly lives for us?
3: Yeah. Well, you, you know,
5: I agree with that. that,
3: that, that that's fair. It's a dodgy thing to say now, I, mean, I that you, is, know, it, you know it is a lot more than a few elderly lives you know there's no point in really like kind of downplaying the damage although I do I, you know I do understand what you're saying
4: I think that yeah. you did bring up a really good point there in that and I think it's it's, it's actually when put like this it's the most you know it's the most punching way of putting lockdown the people who are going to be worst affected by lockdown are the ones that's not protecting the people who are having their jobs ruined their futures destroyed are not the ones who are even vulnerable
2: yeah well also another thing is that um there are also uh, many uh young uh, people with um asthma and other disabilities uh, like i think it was a month or two ago, a child in the UK, age of 13, died from COVID. Not sure if it was assisted by any other um, condition, but uh, I, I am aware that that has been happening. Also, one recently, a uh, seven-year-old.
4: Mm-hmm. Obviously, any death, young or old, I think we can all agree, is a tragic loss of life. But yeah, I think we, we do need to accept the fact that, that people do die. It's a natural part of life, and it is not going to be sustainable to do this for everything. I mean, we're not going to ban cars because some people crash. I mean, this idea of just trying to cushion everyone from every possible risk they could have, I think we need to give people the decision, put it back in their hands, because people are not children. They can make their own minds up as to whether they would rather take that risk or live life to the fullest. Yeah. And I it, think that kind of makes uh,
3: sense. But um, I think that it would only be people's really decision once uh, the elderly and vulnerable are vaccinated, because it's not their decision if people are going out and spreading the virus. And uh, as I mentioned, um, spreading it to potential uh you know, nurses or caretakers or or doctors. That that's not a decision made by uh, elderly people. I think I think people should be given the decision mm-hmm. once once the elderly and vulnerable are safe.
4: Yeah, I think you know it is really important to push everything towards that vaccination goal. And I think if anything, we should cut back on the amount we're investing in tests and police blockades and invest that into vaccinating. Yeah, that is really. You know the, the golden gun out of this, and then it's the only possible way that we're going to get out of this.
5: The current situation and um, in with our vaccination seems to be going. Obviously, I can very It's very understandable how difficult it is to probably dish out about four million vaccines. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the rate we're going at now is a little bit slow. Yeah, I mean, I think compared to a place like the UK and like America. Yeah. Where Biden's plan, when you know he is a couple hours into office, his plan was to vaccinate one million people a day, or some
3: huge number like that. Mm-hmm.
6: And
5: yet we're over here kind of doing like ten thousand. You know.
4: Well, I mean, it all goes back.
3: the Budget of the of the U.S. is is quite enormous, and even even if they did vaccinate um a million, they've got some. I think over three. I think three hundred and thirty million people. Um in their country. So even that is a pretty small dent compared to you know the ratio of vaccinated to non-vaccinated in say the UK. I think the UK
4: Well no, because look at Israel, population of 7 million, they've nearly done everyone. Yeah.
3: So
5: like especially a very well developed country like Ireland, you know. I mean, I Ireland think it's all... taking so long.
3: The yes, Earth, no, that's true, but that's... I just don't think the US is a good example of Okay. Uh, yeah, proper yeah, of vaccines. But
5: my, my question is why can't, you know, medical students, uh, GPs, you know, like everyone who's related to anything in the medical industry start dishing out these vaccines? Yeah, I maybe mean, like, like so. Like, it, it doesn't require huge yeah. medical knowledge to be able to dish out a vaccine, it's a needle in your arm.
4: We saw it's a. take a huge amount
5: of effort until.
4: We saw in Israel they were giving out jabs at pubs, one free pint if you get the vaccine. I mean, if 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 there is any method to get Ireland vaccinated quickly, that'd be it. Yeah, pubs.
2: Yeah, I mean, also, if you talk about affordability, like why don't the people just um, purchase the vaccine themselves? Are they too overpriced? Well,
5: because, because I think the reason for that is because the government really want to take control on. Um, their knowledge about who's getting vaccinated, the number's getting vaccinated, and, like... You could do, like, stations yeah. where... I, I thought about that before, the idea that, like, disposable needles at home and you can share your vaccine to your family and that's it. Well,
4: you not the main the issue with
2: these... What you can do is you can... Uh, they've got the COVID testing, like... Um, building set up. What they can do is they can have the vaccines there, and people go there and pay for it to get it done there. It doesn't yeah. have to come home or be
3: just. That's that's fair, but we don't really want a situation life-wise. like um like you know in America for most healthcare situations, if you can pay for it, you you can have the treatment. We we I think we really want to avoid that kind of healthcare system, and you know for people outbidding each other to get their hands on a vaccine, I don't think that's the right way to go about it.
5: Well, but I think I mean, inevitably. You know, the more money you're going to have, the more power you have, the more things accessible are, you know what I mean? Like, I, which I think is a little bit unfortunate, but I think that's just kind of reality, isn't
3: it? But also the thinking. reality is, you know, people, richer people tend to have, you know, bigger houses and, and live in sort of maybe less populated areas, like suburban areas, whereas a lot of the uh, people who aren't going to be able to afford that kind of uh, system yeah. are people in the crowded you know, possibly North County, Dublin, you know, um, uh, you know, high-rise buildings and estates?
4: Very rarely, perhaps. I actually agree with Fiona on this one. Um, I would be very much opposed to a, a, you know, whoever can afford it, get vaccines. I think it should be really a public run thing. But what I think the main issue we're having is our membership of the European Union I mean it took us three weeks later than the UK to start vaccinating and we couldn't start even if we had vaccines we couldn't start vaccinating people until every EU country was ready I mean are we genuinely putting this you know the the sake of European unity over people's lives I think that's just truly despicable yeah
5: definitely I I I just think there should obviously I wouldn't know as well maybe as a healthcare worker but there just seems to be like a slight lack of urgency to dish out these vaccines. You know, waiting for other countries in the EU to be ready and, you know, testing and would I be wrong in saying that? Maybe I am wrong, I don't really know but I, it's just a bit
4: mental. You're, 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 re- you're. You're spot on there. I mean the EU's handling of it has been an absolute shambles. And I think the worst the worst part of it all is the people who are responsible we didn't vote for and we can't get rid of them. We can't hold them to account. We can't fire Ursula von der Leyen at the next election because there is none. And I think this really does call into question our membership of the European Medicines Agency
3: that's true although in fairness it is uh, the governments within the EU that elect you know candidates or and, and and um later on commissioners for the EU so although you're right that they're not themselves elected by the people it is kind of up to the people to decide who elects them so in a in an indirect way we are we do have control
4: well i would very much disagree with that i mean we live in a country where very rarely the government will even have a majority of the people behind them, and the majority of these commissioners and commission presidents are complete failed politicians who no one even knows. I mean, I I would ask, does anyone here know the name of the Irish European Commissioner? No.
3: Nope. Well, he was changed
4: recently, wasn't he? Because he was
3: um fired I mean, for COVID.
4: Nothing, you know, gets the point across clearer than that. aid, McGuinness, I mean, they're almost always failed politicians at home. So where do they go? The only place that will accept them? Well, of course, Brussels anyway. Okay, with that, um, I think
2: that is all um, for this week's panel and This has been Alec Linklater, Jonathan Hoffman, Matthew Burke-Kennedy and Fionn Graham. Thank you very much.
7: COVID-19 from a teenager's perspective. COVID has been difficult for everybody, as we all know. But I'd like to draw attention to the effects it had on the youth of Ireland in particular. Now don't get me wrong, I don't speak for every teen in Ireland, but I do have an observation on the whole situation, which I feel to be very valid and quite frankly, overlooked. COVID-19, the virus that turned everybody's life upside down. This virus that began from a food market in China and managed to spread and have an immeasurable effect on the whole world. From economies crumbling, all the way to people losing their jobs and families finding living with each other more difficult than ever. I don't think a single person just under two years ago would have believed you if you told them that this was in store for them in 2020. I feel the whole situation has been so serious that little things like how teenagers are coping and how exams are going to be worked out have been overlooked. I don't feel the voice of students was taken into account at any one time realistically. Did anyone say, hang on, what do the kids think when all of the decisions shaping our lives are being made? from exams and predicted grades, to keeping schools out and discouraging any socialisation whatsoever. How are current sixth years going to fare in their leaving certs, having lost out on the majority of their fifth year, and now most of their final year? You can argue that school was occurring online, but you realise it does not come close in comparison to the education we receive at school. That would be a more widely known fact if people had asked to see what was and wasn't working if we were or weren't learning to the same extent or even at all. Many people just don't have a suitable environment for effective learning at home, whether it be from younger siblings running in and out of your study room, poor Wi-Fi as everyone in the house is using it, or to not even having a study room at all. How is a child expected to take in information that is vital for the rest of their lives when they simply don't have the environment to do just that? How can someone be expected to learn from staring at a video call screen that keeps freezing due to poor Wi-Fi.
6: The Proud Boys are a group of self-described Western chauvinists that have gained significant media attention in the recent BLM movement and US election. The Proud Boys are a far-right nationalist, anti-feminist group and consist of white males. Marked by their black and yellow Fred Perry polo t-shirts and caps, the Proud Boys have been in the media recently as they have attended or organised right-wing rallies and have instigated violence against left-wing groups across the US. Videos have constantly circulated online of confrontations and scrimmages between left- and right-wing supporters, many of which have turned violent. One may ask themselves, how did they become so prevalent recently? In 1994, Gavin McInnes founded the outlet Vice News. In 2008, McCoynes was pushed out of the outlet he had co-founded. After this, McCoynes headed on on a path exploring America's far-right fringes. Appearing in many conservative talk shows, McCoynes declared the Proud Boys as a club focused on anti-political correctness, anti-white guilt, and with meetings that would consist of drinking and fighting. It is believed that the Proud Boys were originally set up in 2016. In late May 2020, George Floyd died in horrific circumstances due to police brutality. This death was the catalyst for protests that spread across both America and the world. These protests continued for the summer. However, one city in the northwest of America, Portland, continued rioting for months after. Known for being a leftist liberal city, the Pred Boys and other groups descended on the city as they saw it as what they described the worst a city In America. In an interview with a local news outlet, Joe Biggs, the organiser of the Portland protest, who was a proud boy, said, What happens in Portland trickles down in everywhere else, inspiring other domestic terrorist organisations and other people to spark violence in other cities around the country. The turf war that ensued here gained the proud boys a large amount of media attention. With around 20,000 members, you'd have to question why the proud boys have the spotlight on themselves. What is the psychological aspect behind them, considering they are a small enough group? In a presidential debate in October with Joe Biden, Trump was asked to condemn the Proud Boys and white supremacists in general. In his response, Trump told them to stand back and stand by, nearly suggesting they were like his own personal militia and he was dishing out the orders. Something worrying and to note if he runs again in 2024. With the rather lenient gun laws in America, could groups with firearms be used to intimidate and danger others in the future? We are seeing the effects of laws like these in Brazil, with President Bolsonaro, known for being Trump-esque. He in favour of loosening the laws. Gun purchases have already increased by 65%. With more guns in the streets, inevitably means more violence and the possible formation of armed groups. This is happening in America also. One of the darker days in American history happened recently, in January. This was, of course, the Capitol Hill riots, where many Proud Boys and Trump supporters marched toward and entered Capitol Hill. Joe Biggs and other Proud Boys have been charged recently for their involvement. In an interview with Channel 4, Enrique Tarrio, the chairman of the Proud Boys, said that if the Biden administration doesn't reach out to these people in one way or another... What you were seeing on the screen here right now, where he was referring to the Capitol Hill riots, is what you will see for the next four years. Tario also warned that if something like that were to happen in an open, carrying state like Virginia, there could be serious trouble. So how will Biden suppress this? Will he have to use appeasement? With the growing divide in America becoming more and more evident, Biden will have trouble in the future trying to reunite a nation that has already been torn apart.